It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Oh my God. Oh my God. It was the night of the 22nd of May, 2017. This is the ambulance service. Is the patient breathing? So I'm at the MEN Arena in Manchester. The bomb just got off in the foyer. It was an attack that shocked and horrified the world and struck deep at the heart of a city. The attacker recklessly targeted children and teenagers at an Ariana Grande concert at the Manchester Arena. We just got getting a report now from Greater Manchester Police who are now saying that there have been uh, confirmed a number of fatalities following reports of an explosion at Manchester Arena. 22 people died that night as a result of the attack by a suicide bomber, a man who was a local, a resident of Manchester. I can confirm that the man suspected of carrying out last night's atrocity is 22-year-old Salman Abidi. Four years on, as the inquest into the attack continues, new information has come to light detailing a Libyan connection. I'm fairly convinced that the Abadi brothers were not alone. There were other people who possibly assisted and probably knew what was going to happen. What do we now know about what happened in the run-up to that night? And why has there only ever been one terrorist conviction related to the attack? We are where we are. There are five suspects that are in Libya who either left before or after the bomb attack who are likely to never return to this country. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the Manchester Arena bombing, four years on. Bells rang out across Manchester on Saturday night, exactly four years after the horrific bombing at the Manchester Arena. As the inquest into the bombing continues, the Sunday Times has tracked the investigation closely and revealed new facts about what happened on that fateful night. As thousands fled the horror at the Manchester Arena, on the other side of town, an otherwise unremarkable white Nissan Micra sat parked outside an apartment block deep in Manchester's student quarter, under the watchful eye of a notorious Libyan drug gang. But what connects the two? What do we now know about how the attack happened 
And how close are we to bringing justice to the families of the victims and to a city that's still struggling to come to terms with what happened? My name is David Collins and I'm the Northern Editor for The Sunday Times. David is based in Manchester and he's been investigating every detail of what happened that night. I think when it happened, I think the country, the country was in shock because we hadn't had a terror attack for so long. At 10.33 last night, the police were called to reports of an explosion at Manchester Arena. It was 12 years Mm. since a major, major terror attack had occurred. We now know that a single terrorist detonated his improvised explosive device near one of the exits of the venue. And I think it was a real wake-up call that we were vulnerable still from something that was rising in Syria called ISIS. Deliberately choosing the time and place to cause maximum carnage and to kill and injure indiscriminately. Manchester's had a history of terrorism attacks. You know, the IRA bombed the Arndale Centre, levelling the city centre. This was something completely different. So many people died. And it brought out a lot of grief in Manchester. Shock, uh, horror, because it was targeting young people. It was targeting children. Lots of them were injured really severely because the bomb, the way it was made, included lots of nuts and bolts and shrapnel. The bomb itself was designed to hurt and maim far more people than it killed. After our darkest of nights, Manchester is today waking up to the most difficult of dawns. It is hard to believe what has happened here in the last few hours and to put into words the shock, anger and hurt that we feel today. The idea that this focused and attacked children, I think, made it really awful. These were children, young people and their families that those responsible chose to terrorise and kill. This was an evil act. And it impacted on the psyche of the city and the whole of the UK, I think. It took a lot of healing to get over it. As the devastation caused by the attack became clear, the police and the security services were struck by the sheer force of the bomb. The attack occurred 10.31pm when Salman Abedi walked into the Arena City Room on May the 22nd, 2017, and detonated his IED. They had to work out, basically, how they constructed such a powerful device. It's one of the most powerful bombs ever let off in mainland Britain. This bomb had the power to kill people from 66 feet away. They started to construct it, Salman and Hashem Abedi, the two brothers, in January 2017 where they began buying chemicals that they needed to create an explosive material, which is called TATP. Sometimes dubbed the mother of Satan, TATP is a highly unstable chemical explosive. It's become a favourite among terrorists, and it's been used in a number of attacks, including the 2007 London bombings, the 2015 Paris attacks, and the 2016 explosions in Brussels. There is no commercial use for it because it is so unstable. It's really difficult to store. It's really sensitive to kind of heat or friction. So you don't see it in use in mining or construction or whatever. But what it does make is a very effective IED. So ISIS basically release tutorial videos 
on how to make TATP. And the reason ISIS latched onto TATP is because it's quite easy to make. It's terrifying to say that. But they are the words of the, the police's kind of forensic bomb experts. You know, it is a simple chemical process using three core ingredients. So the trick is to get those three core ingredients without raising any suspicion from the authorities, which is something that they did very effectively. So the first thing they did was they bought sulfuric acid. Sulfuric acid is sometimes used to clear drains. So the bomb makers, Salman Abedi, who carried out the attack, and his brother, Hashem, started by buying a litre of the stuff using their cousin Alhaf Fuljani's Amazon account. Alhaf, what he told the police was Hashem tricked him and said it was for a car battery. They didn't use the family home as a delivery address. They were quite clever. So they lived in Fallowfield, which is South Manchester, and they got a rental address around the corner at Lindham Street where they got the chemicals delivered to. The second key component of TATP is hydrogen peroxide. Again, they used Amazon. Do you think it's easier if you're on Amazon rather than going into your local garden centre or wherever you'd find these things? Is it easier to do it without raising alarm? Well, I think what it does is it separates you from the purchase itself because if you're using somebody else's account and you're using somebody else's bank card to make the purchase you're completely separate you distance yourself from the purchase it was very effective you know the authorities were not on to them again it's all shipped out not to the family address it all goes to that lindham street address rented address around the corner so they've got all their chemicals they also need acetone again that's a very common chemical that they, they can get it's a kind of a stripper a paint stripper so they rent out another address at a block of flats in Somerton Court. That's in Blackleaf, North Manchester. And that's where they actually physically make the TATP. It is extraordinary. You know, the neighbours who were living in that block are so lucky. They could have levelled the block with what yeah. they were creating. Once they physically made it, and this is the key bit, this is the bit we've revealed in great detail in our investigation. The investigation showed for the first time the possible links between people living at a third address, Devil House, and the unfolding terror plot. They've created their TATP. It's all in that apartment in Blakely. They go away and they buy a Nissan microcar for £100 secondhand. Mm. They get help uh, to do that, actually, from somebody who we're going to talk about a bit later on, I guess, called Ahmed Tagdi. The significance of this car is that they put the TATP from this flat in Blackley in this car in barrels and they transport it to an apartment block called Devil House in Rushholme in South Manchester. It's relatively close to where they grew up in Fallowfield. Rushholme is, you know, in Manchester, it's famous for being, you know, part of the Curry Mile. You know, everybody goes there. And students as well, a lot of students live in Rushholme. They use this address to park the Nissan microcar. So we're now four weeks until the attack. Mm. Basically, that car is like a bomb-making workshop. I mean, it is extraordinary what the police found in there. You know, they found all mm. sorts of things, everything you could need to make a bomb. So you had tin snips for shaping metal. You had blue plastic drums for storing chemicals, a black plastic container. You had packs of screws and nails 
wow. which were used as a shrapnel, uh, hacksaw, hammer, pair of pliers. And it was basically left in the car park of Devil House to sit there for around about a month. They parked it up there. And then the day after, they left the country to go to Libya. So Salman and Hashem, they've now got their car ready. It's full of all the components. And they leave the UK along with their father, Ramadan, and their mother, Samia, and their younger sister. They get on a flight and they go uh, to Libya where they've got extended family. Salman fought in Libya during school holidays to overthrow Gaddafi with his father. Really? You know, it's, it's incredible. But, I mean, that is part of the roots of his radicalisation. The cause to overthrow Gaddafi from his family's point of view was to replace him with an Islamist state. And this is something that, you know, Salman fought for. Uh, he was prepared to die for it. And some yeah. of his friends did die for that. We'll hear more about the Libya connection and the part it might have played in the planning and preparation of the attack in just a moment. But first, a message from one of my colleagues and a familiar voice to regular listeners. Hi, this is Tom Whipple and I'm the science editor at The Times. Thank you for listening. By doing so, you enable me to keep pace with the rapidly changing developments in the coronavirus pandemic and more. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one free month. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The suicide bomber Salman Abedi and his brother Hashem had created the highly unstable explosive TATP and gathered the final components they'd need to create a powerful bomb that would soon devastate the lives of thousands at the Manchester Arena. They left it all in the back of a white Nissan Micra parked in a residential area before getting on a plane to Libya with the rest of their family. New information has now come to light which shows how a wider network of conspirators might have played a key role in the plot. I think what people have kind of assumed is Salman Abedi was the bomber. He died in the bomb attack and his brother helped construct that bomb, Hashem, and he was extradited from Libya last year and he was uh, sentenced at the Old Bailey last year to a record 55 years minimum. But actually, what the evidence from the Manchester Inquiry has shown is that there was a large network, potentially, that helped them along the way, constructing this bomb and then delivering it at the arena. A group of people who helped them purchase the chemicals and also the second group who were based at uh, Devil House 
when they were in Libya, when they went off for a month and just before Salman was due to come back, when he put together the bomb, he was suspected of checking up on this Nissan Micra car where all the bomb materials were kept. CCTV shows a number of members of a drug gang based around the Devil House Apartments repeatedly checking up on the Nissan Micra that was used to store the bomb-making components. They are shown going up to it, looking at it. They're taking calls on their phones from Libya when we know the Abedis were in Libya. So they get a call in from Salman or Hashem and then minutes later, the members of this gang are seen looking at the car, they're walking around the car, they're looking through the window of the car, which is really significant because this car is £100, it's a banger. You know, it's not something that you'd look to steal, take interest in. After the bomb attack itself, you see gang members going up to the car and rubbing one of the doors. It was possible, potentially, that that was for the purposes of getting rid of forensic evidence. But also... When Salman comes back from Libya, he goes straight to his Nissan car to check it's okay. And then he checks himself into a fourth address, which is in the city centre called Granby House. And that is where he used an apartment to actually finally construct the device, which he Mm. takes the TATP from the Nissan Micra car and all the sort of tools he needs. And that's what he uses to blow up the arena. Whilst Salman Abedi was in that apartment, apparently constructing the bomb, mobile phone data shows a number of the gang members associated with Devil House turning up in the vicinity of Abedi's new apartment. One of the people associated with this is called Ahmed Tagdi. Ahmed was the person who helped the Abedis purchase the Nissan Micra. Ahmed is an interesting character because he was suspected by the police of receiving military training in Libya. He also had evidence, security services, that he had gone with Salman Abedi, the the bomber, to go and visit a known terrorist serving in prison at the time. Mobile phone analysis showed that Tagdi was in contact with the Abedi brothers whilst they were in Libya Shortly before the attack, they found mobile phones and a laptop connected to Tagdi that had ISIS-related material. Tagdi was seen days after the attack near the Nissan Micra car. He was seen on CCTV looking at the car. And also, his phone was tracked to within 500 metres of Granby House, where Salman has checked himself into this city centre apartment to make the bomb. Um, There's another gang member called Ahmed Al-Zalitni, seen on CCTV multiple times, going up to the car, looking at it. Uh, He's on the phone, he's walking round it. Al-Zalitni was seen with the microcar three days after the arena explosion, where he was viewed wiping down the doorframe. The police were very interested in these men and several others, and their repeated visits to check on the Nissan Micra containing the Abedi's makeshift bomb factory. But directly linking them to the explosion hasn't been straightforward. So what they said in police interview after the attack was that basically they thought there was a rival gang's drug stash in that car, and that's why they were going up to it. 
Their phones are tracked in the city centre, close to where Salman is, his apartment is building his bomb. It's suggestive, but it doesn't pinpoint you to a specific area. So they can't put these people inside Granby House. Uh, that's just how mobile phone, they call it cell sighting. Yeah. So cell sighting puts you in a certain area, but it doesn't put you in a specific house. It doesn't really do that. It just doesn't do that, unfortunately. I mean, it'd be handy if it did, but at the moment it just doesn't. It puts you in a segment. So there's a strong circumstantial case around some of these people, but none of them were ever charged. They all denied having any involvement. So Elias Almedi, Ahmed Al-Zalitni, um, there was a third man. They were later sentenced for uh, a drugs conspiracy that was being carried out at that apartment block. They were dealing Class oh. A drugs on the premises, but they were never charged with terrorism offences. There's been a long-running and extensive investigation into the bombing, but so far it's resulted in just one terrorist conviction, and even that was achieved against the odds. There was a huge huge police operation you know following the attack at one point there's a thousand staff members working on operation mantle line which was the code name for the investigation into the arena bomb and mantle line had this huge list of suspects and only one of them hashem was ever convicted this is the brother that's the brother and in fairness the police did extraordinarily well, not just Greater Manchester Police, but the, the British authorities, to actually get Hashem back. Because when Salman and Hashem went to Libya, and when the car was being minded in Devil House Car Park, Salman came back, but Hashem stayed in Libya. He never returned. So the attack happened. When that happened, Hashem was still in Tripoli. And shortly afterwards, he was arrested and he was in the custody of a militia force called RADA. And RADA held him at an airport in Tripoli for a long time. And it was thought that there is no way on earth that, the, that we'll ever be able to get Hashem back to this country and put him through a court of law. He was charged for the murder of 22 people because they found his DNA over the materials used to construct the bomb. So some of the barrels where the explosives were potentially kept that were kept mm. in the micro, his DNA and fingerprints were found on that. So there was a compelling case against Hashem and he managed to get him back. And, and, it, and it was incredible. It was a great result for Great Manchester Police. And he got 55 years. There were gasps in the courtroom in the, at the Old Bailey when he was mm. convicted, when, when the judge sentenced him to, to such a long period of time, because it had never been done before. That was the longest ever in the history of this country determinate sentence handed down. We would like to thank Judge Jeremy Baker for imposing the biggest sentence ever in these circumstances. However, as the families of Chloe and Liam, no sentence will ever reflect the loss. We feel each day without them because he, because he won't really be serving the sentence that we are. Despite the unprecedented sentence handed down to Hashem Abedi, many of the families of the victims and their lawyer believe there are strong circumstantial cases around others associated with the attack. People the Abedi brothers were in contact with in the days and weeks leading up to the bombing. 
none of whom have been charged with terrorist offences. There are five people that the police have made suspects and are currently in Libya, and it is very unlikely that we'll ever see them return. Two of the other suspects are uh, the mother and father, Ramadan and Samia, and the chances of us getting them back is really minimal. The bomber's parents, Ramadan and Samia, deny that they or any other member of the family had any involvement in the plot. And Ramadan has previously said in a 2017 interview, we don't believe in killing innocents. This is not us. So that's the tricky thing for the police at the moment. Operation Mantle Line is still active. They have some of the suspects we've just been talking about subject to a kind of rolling assessment on whether or not to charge them, a periodic assessment, which is really rare. Part of the problem was that the Abadi brothers were really careful with the mobile phones. So they were known to use 14 different handsets and they've only managed to recover two of them. One of them was blown up in the explosion. It was an Alcatel phone. The second one was a Samsung Galaxy. And the problem was that the Samsung Galaxy had been restored to factory settings and the Alcatel phone was completely destroyed. So they had real problem extracting the information they needed to kind of build up the evidence around their network. With the Libyan suspects, the way the extradition procedure works between the UK and Libya is you have to charge somebody in this country to then trigger the extradition process of a Libyan Ah. national. And because Mm. they've not charged these people, because they say the evidence threshold isn't quite met yet, the extradition looks really unlikely. David, it sounds like a lot of the inquiry and the investigation are on hold because people who potentially might be suspects or who can certainly help with the inquiry are in Libya and uncontactable. At the same time, we know that the key characters who were involved, Salman Abedi, the bomber himself, were in Libya just before the bombing. It does feel like Libya it plays a very major role in all of this. I mean, tell us a bit about that. Tell us a bit about the Abedi family, how and why they came to Britain, and a bit about their background. Ramadan Abedi and Samia Tabal, they were born and raised and grew up in Libya. Samia Tabal, actually, the mother, is a nuclear scientist. She went to Tripoli University, came, oh, wow. came top of a class. Extremely intelligent woman. Ramadan was part of a group which basically wanted to overthrow Colonel Gaddafi. There was a really hardcore group of Islamists growing in Libya who wanted the, the, the country to be governed through the principles of Islam. And Gaddafi obviously saw that as a kind of challenge to his power. And Ramadan was part of the movement part of a group called the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, the LIFG, and they were affiliated with Al-Qaeda. He fought against Gaddafi. A lot of people fled Libya, and they came to the UK. We gave a lot of Libyan dissidents refuge in the UK, and Ramadan and Samia were two of those people. They settled in South Manchester. They built up a community largely around Fallowfield and Rush Home called Little Tripoli. It was, it's nicknamed in Manchester. 
because there's so many Libyan dissidents living there, essentially, yeah. and the children. I remember I actually went down to Little Tripoli the day after the Manchester bombing. I was reporting on it and to try to find out if people knew the bomber and to understand a bit more about the community. And it is fascinating. I mean, you know, every shop you go to is Libyan. Every restaurant is Libyan. It really is Little Tripoli. Tell us a bit about that community. A lot of people in that community suffered as well, which is kind of Mm. sometimes forgotten about because... Like with any community, you have different characters. You, it's made up of lots of different component parts. There is no doubt about it, a hardline Islamist faction within that little Tripoli community in South Manchester. And it's made up of those Li- Libyan dissidents who fought against Gaddafi. There was a new power rising in Syria, in the Muslim world, and it was called ISIS. And a lot of their children flocked to the ISIS banner and Hashem and Salman and a lot of their friends the police were finding mobile phones and laptops and there's all sorts of ISIS propaganda, videos photographs you know, uh, sermons you name it, connected to ISIS but it's important to note that Little Tripoli is made up of all different component parts and there is a liberal section of the Libyan community that does not agree. Some of the Libyans I spoke to there sort of said, you know, they'd been alarmed by the the radical strain that they could see coming up in part of the community. We are deeply shocked, like anybody else, and we just extend our condolences to the, the people who lost their loved ones. These voices are from my reports at the time, people I met in Little Tripoli, who were shocked by what had just happened. If you are making trouble, so you, you should leave this country. Even yesterday when I go with my kids to garden, I'm scaring. I'm shy to say I'm, I'm Libyan. Do you worry that people here in Manchester will now think that the Libyan community, you yes. know, will look on them differently? Yeah, I feel in the shame on the all Libyan community, yes. There's a very big shame. There's a huge Libyan community here in Manchester. Do you think the fact that there's an awful lot of toing and froing? do you think going there and sort of seeing what without, is effectively no. a constant war, do you oh, think that without. has an effect? You, you know what, if we're going to be real and, and if we're going to, for example, like say, oh, you know, a, a young British male can get affected by his video games or watching movies, do you not think that same effect can happen to those children that come from a war-torn country or a war zone? It's going to have an effect to them. David, you've followed every twist and turn in this inquiry. You've, you've read all the paperwork around it. Are there any conclusions so far? Are there lessons that could be learned? I mean, I think the big conclusion I drew was I'm fairly convinced that the Abadi brothers were not alone. One person was charged and sentenced. However, there were other people who possibly assisted and probably knew what was going to happen who have not been brought to justice. One of the suspects was allowed to leave the country. How was that allowed to happen? I think there has to be a look at how these big operations work. They had a lot of suspects. I am, again, I'm sympathetic towards the police. It's an extraordinary investigation to get him sentenced. But are the people out there who could have been brought to justice and haven't? Have the police been too cautious, maybe, with what they're putting in front of the CPS? Are the CPS too reluctant as well? There are potentially good, strong circumstantial cases that you could potentially put in front of a jury and they might convict. And David, as things stand, do you have faith that everybody who was involved that night 
in the bombing will be held to account, will be brought to justice. Unless the extradition treaty with Libya somehow changes, I think it is really unlikely that we'll see certain people ever brought to justice. We are where we are. There are five suspects that are in Libya who either left before or after the bomb attack who are likely to never return to this country and never be interviewed by anybody from Greater Manchester Police. They'll probably live the rest of their lives in North Africa knowing that if they ever did come back to the UK, what would happen to them. There are still people in this country where there are question marks over them. And I know that the families are incredibly concerned that they are still walking, some of them, around the streets of Manchester. They have never been charged with anything. And the big question mark for them and a lot of people in Manchester are, if they were involved, could they do it again? This weekend, Manchester marked the fourth anniversary of the bombing. For David, the city he calls home is still healing. The city coped with it in lots of different ways. I mean, you've had pop concerts, you've had big gatherings. This is the place in the northwest of England. It's ace, it's the best, and the songs that we sing from the stands from our band set the whole planet shaking. You had the famous poem read out by Tony Walsh. Because Manchester gives us such strength from the fact that this... is the place. That poem was really a, a massive moment. I'll never forget that, him reading. Always remember, never forget, forever Manchester. Choose love, Manchester, thank you. And the idea that a poem could bring people together and sum up how people feel, I always thought he should be made the Poet Laureate after that. Andy Burnham, he gave a lot of leadership in, in the aftermath. But I think these cliches of it united a city and everything else, I think it did. But I think four years on, people haven't forgotten it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Sunday Times Northern Editor, David Collins. You can read more of David's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer today was Chris Wade. The executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Tom Birchall. If there's a story you'd like us to look into, if you have any ideas for future episodes or any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do drop us a line at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.